Good morning, good morning. Happy New Year, Fellowship. Good to see you this morning. Good to see you this morning. I just want to say a couple of things here. Uh, one is uh, that, that handout you have on the 28-day challenge, um, Chris Eldridge on our team put that together, and I think that is one sharp tool. And so, uh, get a chance to say thank you, Chris. Uh, do that for me. You know, it's, it's just a joy and a privilege to work with a team of people. We dream about these things, and, and uh, there are a lot of folks on this team that's smarter than me. That don't take much, but, uh, and they uh, do a great job. And so thanks, Chris, for helping us out on all of that. I want to underscore, too, about uh, the greenhouse uh, that, that Richard just talked about. Just want to underscore that, that this is a service. It's not, it's not exactly the same as this, but it's sort of a leadership development type of environment. It has to do with those of us who sense that God might be leading us to do something. We have a sense of a calling. And so it's sort of a common ground place where we can come together and be encouraged and nurtured in that. Uh, we believe part of God's uh, signature over Fellowship Bible Church is to raise up men and women who will impact the world with the gospel and that their dreams and their visions here. And so we wanted to create an environment where that could flourish. And that's part of the whole greenhouse concept. Fellowship Institute is part of that. Uh, the greenhouse service is part of that. Down the road, you're going to be hearing about a mentoring strategy that we have that will be part of that. And so uh, we really believe part of God's call for our church is to send out laborers. And we want to do all that we can to encourage the dreams and the visions that God's placing on the hearts and minds of, of the folks here at Fellowship Bible Church. Well, if you have a Bible, I want you to meet me in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you so very much for what you have been doing in our hearts and lives. And we thank you, Father God, for what we just witnessed. Uh, the young man, Antonio, giving, uh, sharing about his faith and being baptized. Father, what an incredible picture. Thank you, O oh God, that uh, Lord, by faith, uh, we want to see multiple baptisms like this throughout the course of this year. And Father, we ask of you today that you will speak to us. God, that you'll take us to where we need to be. Lord, uh, whenever we talk about sharing our faith and about evangelism, it's an intimidating subject because it becomes very personal. It's something that I have to do that is very difficult to do, even for those of us who have been sharing Christ for many, many years. So Lord, I pray that you will speak to us, give us hearts that will embrace and listen and obey. We love you, Jesus, and thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to connect something with what Richard said, which really serves as the introduction to this message. There's some messages that you preach and series that we preach here that is forecasting what needs to take place. And uh, this is going to be one of them this week and next week. However, there is something exciting that's bubbling up in our church. We sense that this is something that God is already doing. This vision and heart for evangelism and for sharing the gospel has, has gone up a couple of notches among our staff and among our team, and it's exciting to see. And we really believe that this is something that God wants to ratchet up here in our church. And just to be frank with you, the elders, myself, um, well, we, we've, not been very, we've not been very pleased with the evangelism temperature in, in our church. And uh, we believe that needs to be corrected because it is the core of why Jesus came. 
And one of the things that I want you to hear today, even though we're going to be doing two messages on evangelism, uh, I would like to, for you to join us in praying that this is not one of these things. We did the two messages on evangelism. Okay, and we did the 28th day deal. Now, now let's, let's get into something else. No, there's nothing else to get into. It is core of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. If we're not multiplying disciples of Jesus, we're dysfunctional Christians. It is why he came. And the devil does all that he possibly can to keep our mouths shut about Jesus. He creates surrogate gospels or other passions where we get more excited about other things in the name of Jesus so that we don't talk about him and we don't spread the gospel. And so from the very beginning, I want you to pray along with us that although we'll be doing these two messages, there'll be some other things that we're going to be doing throughout the course of this year that will help ramp up the evangelism temperature in our church, not to beat anybody up, but to encourage us with sharing the greatest story that's ever been told. And I might just add this as I spoke last week, the devil will be very, very upset. He won't mess with you too much if you just talk about God or you have this little ministry off to the side. But once you start talking about the cross, that scares him spitless. That scares him because it releases people out of darkness. And so along with this, I want to encourage all of us to open up our hearts and to pray and to seek God as never before. That number one, we'll be faithful individually in sharing the gospel. But number two, that we'll be protected, that many will enter into the kingdom. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul outlines and speaks to the aroma that we carry. Now, I'm not going to speak specifically to this text, but myself and Shane next week, uh, we're going to sort of tat team. This will be sort of like the launching pad, uh, two verses for this series. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. The Apostle Paul says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Paul is speaking of what would take place when Romans would come back, the army would come back from from a war and they would have captives. They would bring these captives into the city of Rome. And these soldiers had been gone for a long time. And often my research indicates that the temple doors, pagan temple doors would be open and there would be incense coming from these altars and there would be garlands of flowers and this kind of thing, welcoming home these soldiers. Well, for the soldiers who had been away to the battle for a long time, that was a sweet smell of victory. Welcome home, the aroma. Ah, But for those captives, that would be the stench of their embalming fluid. And so what I want to say at the very beginning, this sounds a little bit strange to kick it off this way, but we carry in us both a scent and a smell. Those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, for those who want to respond to the good news of the gospel, for those who want to respond to Christ, they're drawn to the scent, the aroma the forgiveness that's offered. But I want to say this from the very beginning. Don't be surprised if you get hard pushback, attack, rejection, because those who don't want to respond, we stink. There is both 
a draw to the gospel, and there's also something about the gospel that divides. And by the way, that's the nature of what we believe. That is the nature of the cross. It is a nature of our message. I'm going to quote David Platt twice today. As I mentioned some months ago, that little book has had a profound impact on me, Radical Together. But David Platt says something that uh, is pretty searing uh, and it's pretty tough, but I think he puts his finger on a problem that we have as followers of Jesus. Listen to what he says. He raises this question. Is it possible to have all of the trappings of the church and miss the heart of Christ? Is it possible for church people to be so focused on personal comforts and so fearful of the potential cost that they virtually forget the purpose of God among the peoples of the world? And when I read read that statement as a pastor here, you, you don't know how easy it is to get off track, how easy it is to get off focus on the gospel message. How easy it is to promote the next program to something that people will come to. How excited you can be about this insight. But I think what Platt says is really true. That we get so program given, driven and we get so bent on my thing and my little affinity group and my little program and what I want God to do for me. That it serves as another gospel and we forget why we're here to begin with. What we're really all about. And I pray that this is not true of Fellowship Bible Church. I pray that we will not make the Bible the gospel. Did you hear what I just said? That we will not make the Bible the gospel. Now, the Bible is the gospel. What do you mean by that? But that we worship teaching and content over against the cross that makes it central. Now, having said all of that... uh, (laughs) Okay, Crawford, isn't sharing Christ really up to me? I mean, it is something that's my choice. Uh, Isn't my example in life enough? I mean, why why don't I have to say anything? And if you're like I am, and this might surprise you, I have shared the gospel many, many, many times. Every time I get on an airplane, every time I'm around non-believers and non-Christians, I ask God, Lord, give me an opportunity. And the thousands and thousands and thousands of times through the course of my Christian experience that I've shared the gospel, I can't remember a time where I wasn't nervous. Can't remember one time. I get more nervous doing that on a personal level than I do preaching. It is a terribly intimidating experience. And so I do get that. And we would rather do almost anything else than to sit down and look somebody in their eyes and talk about eternal matters. So we we develop these little ideas. Well, it's somebody else's gift. Well, I'll just invite them to church and let somebody else talk about it. Or we'll have a program that I'll take them to. Or I'll just live a nice, moral, godly life in front of them. And that ought to be enough. That ought to be enough, you know? And, 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 and my example will draw it into Jesus. Well, the only problem is that we verbally share our faith because God's into speaking. God's into talking. Did you, did you notice that? Yeah, he's into modeling. He's into example. That's all integrity. But God's into speaking. He spoke through Christ. He speaks through the Bible, and now he speaks through us. 
Have you ever noticed that the context in which the gospel is found, often there's speaking involved. There's sharing. There's something to be said. Faith comes by hearing. Romans 10 verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing and that by the word of God. You got to say something. You got to speak. Now, let me give you a little word of encouragement. Our problem tends to be that we feel as if it all depends upon us. We think that I've got to close the deal. I've got to make the sale. If somebody doesn't respond, then it's all on me. Well, that's wrong thinking to begin with. I am so indebted for what I heard from Bill Bright and Campus Crusade for Christ when Karen and I joined staff back in 1978. One of the first things we heard in new staff training was this line. Success in witnessing is sharing Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. You are not on the line and neither am I on the line. It's not about my slick presentation. It's not about me dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Now, don't get me wrong. We'll give you some help on that, too. That gives us confidence. But the truth of the matter is the power is in the message and not in the presentation. And so the burden is not on us. It's not a matter of us closing the deal. Some sow, some water, some harvest. It's all up to him. And by the way, I want to put on the screen here something that I love for you to download. What an amazing tool. It's called God Tools. If you have an iPhone or Android or tablet, iPad or whatever, this is great. Download this this application and it is the outline of a conversation and the outline of the gospel. Uh, you can use it when you're, 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 you know, Panera Bread or whatever, and you're, you're sitting down talking to somebody over a cup of coffee, you just open up your I- iPad or whatever your tablet is, and you can just walk them right through the gospel. It's self-explanatory. What an amazing tool. There are all kinds of tools out there. But before I get into the seven reasons why we should share our faith, I want to talk about a few negative reasons or bad motivations for sharing our faith. And this is what I think we get into sometimes. I actually lifted this from a blog that I read by Chad Hall, who uh, teaches out at uh, Western Seminary. A great, great little blog he wrote on, on this whole idea of false motivations and wrong motivations for sharing your faith. He lists three of them, and I want to underscore them. The first one is insecurity. Believe it or not, sometimes when we share the gospel, it's as if we're trying to market Jesus and we want people to like Jesus and to like us. Well, God is not looking for a fan club. He really isn't. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, we, don't be weird and, and don't be odd. But sometimes we share the gospel out of insecurity. We, we really want affirmation. We really want strokes. We really want people to like us. We want people to like what we have to say. That's not a good reason for sharing the gospel. The other reason, and I want, to, I want, I want us to listen to this, particularly those of us who have political bents, and I raise my hand, particularly those of us who have a prophetic edge to them, and I raise my hand, so I'm speaking to myself, we got to be careful of the second one, sharing the gospel from arrogance. Arrogance. I do not like the environment that has been created over the last 25 years among Christians in this culture. And I'll come right out and say it. Be very careful of culture war language. Be very careful of that. Now, there is a culture war. Don't get me wrong. There is right and wrong. 
But sometimes, sometimes we can come across as if we're more concerned about proving how idiotic and dumb and stupid unbelievers are. And the fact that we're so right about our positions and we're so right about the gospel, even in terms of how we do apologetics, we're more concerned about winning the argument than about being right. No, you're not perfect. The gospel is perfect. I'm not always right. The gospel's always right. And that is a wrong attitude. And don't treat unbelievers as enemies. We treat them as lost. We treat them as those that we once were. And I I quite frankly find this very prevalent these days, very, very prevalent. We get upset about our issues, get upset about what the government is doing, get upset about the moral slide. And before you know it, we address the issues from an argumentative, prideful position rather than from a humble, loving platform, understanding the reason why they hold those positions that they're very lost. And the third bad motivation, insecurity, arrogance, now I'm going to use a big word that we hear all the time, and that is narcissism. Uh, narcissist was a dude that looked at himself in the mirror, you know the old story, he looked at himself and he looked at himself and saw a reflection and he fell in love with the reflection that he saw. And so nothing else was valuable or meaningful to him unless he saw his reflection in everything that he did. And I got to tell you, we, ha- we live in a narcissistic society where everything is always about us. And how this works in evangelism is that we share the gospel thinking that it makes us look good. We can count the number of converts that we have and the people that we've won the Christ and the things that we have done. And uh, the testimony doesn't, doesn't uh, so much reflect the honor and glory of God, but it talks about who we are. And you got to be careful about that. Now, we need to be fruitful. And success is not wrong, but whose success and whose fruit is for the honor and the glory of God. Now, with that in mind, I, I want to outline real quickly. I, you know, I have a very straightforward message here. I want to outline real quickly in your hearing seven biblical reasons why we share our faith. Seven biblical reasons why we share our faith. The first one is this. We share our faith, number one, because it spreads, to, it spreads God's glory. It spreads God's glory. You say, Crawford, that is not intrinsic. Well, that's the reason why we're here. I want to turn your attention back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm sorry, I said 1 Corinthians. I meant 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verses 4 and 6. The Apostle Paul describing the world and God's purposes, he says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, which is the image of God. Now to verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We exist to make known the glory of God, his power and his presence. That is the only reason why we exist. The only reason why we're on this earth. You've heard me say this during our, our, our series on magnetic, a people of holy attraction. The only reason why we exist, the only reason why we are here, 
The only reason is to honor and glorify God. We are his image bearers. The declaration of everything that God wants to do in human history should be seen in and through our walk and relationship with him. Now, now connect the dots here. Paul is connecting the glory of God with the glory of Christ, that he shines through us. Later on, he talks about having, having, having this treasure, this treasure, the person of Jesus in jars of clay. And so we share the gospel, not just from a horizontal transactional sense. We're going to get into some of that, but we share the gospel because it is, it is a way that God is using to spread his glory throughout the world. That this is my father's world. It's all about me. It's all about why you were created and why I am created. It is about the honor and the glory of God. And that is the ultimate reason why we spread the gospel. My second quote from Platt, he says, God is looking for people who are so awed, so captivated, so mesmerized by the glory of God that they will gladly lose their lattes and their lives to make his greatness known in the world. Here's a point, and I think we miss this as we talk about evangelism. I think the problem in evangelism is a problem of a lack of a vertical focus. We would think just the other way, wouldn't we? We would think that the problem in the evangelism that we don't know our environment, that we need to understand our audience, we need to understand how people live, we need to understand our context in human history, we need to understand the socioeconomic dynamics in which we're living, the cultural trends and milieu, and all of that's very important, but I don't think that's a real issue. I think the boldness and the courage to share the gospel comes from a vertical perspective. When we are passionate about being glory bearers and the glory of God showing up, we're less concerned about ourselves and we're less concerned about our own comfort and we're more concerned about his greatness and who he is. So the very first reason why we share the gospel and we make him known to others is because it spreads his glory. The second reason why is because it builds God's kingdom. We share our faith and we share the gospel because it builds his kingdom. That's the only way in which God is building his kingdom. It's through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, these two things go together. You've heard me say quite often here that God is into modeling. He's into modeling. He's into demonstrating. The reason why he chose the children of Israel, I'm going someplace with this. The reason why he chose the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, was to model to a watching world what it meant to have a relationship with God. The reason why he is building his church is to counteract the kingdom of darkness, to model to a watching world what it really means to have your sins forgiven and your life changed. And so when he says in Matthew chapter 16, he gathers a, his disciples together there, Caesarea Philippi, and he says in verse 18, upon this rock that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, I will build, I will build, I will build, I will build, I will build my church. It is a declaration of who Jesus is and what he does in our hearts and lives that causes people to respond, that populates his church. In a sense, you could say his kingdom. But I want you to flip back to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. This is the end game. This is what we're going to see in heaven. This is remarkable. Verse 9, this vision in heaven. 
John writes and records what he saw. He says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A number that no one could number. And God wants to use us literally to populate heaven. My friend Josh McDowell, I love his mission statement. If you know Josh, he's very simple about things. I love his mission statement. He says, I, 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 I exist to share the gospel and to bring as many people to heaven as I possibly can. That ain't bad, is it? That's not bad. And that's what we're all about. And God is about building his kingdom down here So we model before a watching world what it really means to live a forgiven, cleansed, redeemed life and then secondly to populate heaven. Time is running out. So we share our faith to declare the honor and glory of God, but we also share our faith to build God's kingdom. The third reason why we share our faith, which is more personal, is that of sheer gratitude. Gratitude. Paul writes Timothy over in 2 Timothy chapter 1. As you read those two letters to Timothy, now Timothy was a young pastor, but as you read First and Second Timothy, you get this feeling that Tim- Timothy struggled with fear. He really did. He struggled with fear, and there's every indication that he struggled with people-pleasing. Timothy's just like we are. It's not that he didn't have the gifts to lead. It's not that he didn't have the calling to lead. But he got lost somewhere in this whole idea of being intimidated by powerful people and people pleasing. And so Paul picks up his pen in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He talks about Timothy's perspective on the gospel and how grateful he should be. Look at verse 8. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace and gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's as if Paul is saying, Timothy, what, what, what are you ashamed of? What, what, what are you ashamed of? You, you ought to be grateful. You ought to be grateful. Now, I know it's, no, it's not popular to talk about a Jesus who died on the cross in your place and for your sin and the criminal's death there, and we talked about the cross. But you ought to be grateful. It's kind of like the kid that goes off to college, comes from a single parent background, mom works in a factory, worked as hard as she could, and then is embarrassed to introduce his upwardly mobile friends who come from, quote, better backgrounds to his mother. I sometimes feel that that's our attitude. We're more concerned about being cool and being accepted 
that we've lost our gratitude. Are you grateful? Am I grateful for the cross? Paul says, Timothy, wait, 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 buddy. <laughs> wait a minute, man. I know you got these powerful personalities here, and you got all these thoughts and all these sophisticated Greek philosophies, and, and I know you don't want to look like an idiot, and I know that you want to be palatable to people, and you don't want to look like an intellectual buffoon. But are you ashamed? Are you ashamed of what changed your life? Fellowship? Are you a little ashamed? Where's your gratitude? How grateful are you that you will never be separated from God? How grateful are we that our sins have been eternally forgiven? And we share that message. We share it with urgency. We share it with joy because we will never die. Ever. And we'll never be ashamed of him. Ever. As I wrote, I was going over this Friday up in my study and I just began to weep. You know, you know an illustration will come to mind. I thought of my dad, who worked for over 30 years at AMP Warehouse, who sacrificed so that his kids could have. I'll never be ashamed of him. Proud of that sucker. Gratitude pushes the message of Christ right out there. We're humbly grateful. We're humbly grateful for what he's done for us. So we share our faith. The third reason is because we're grateful. Now, the fourth reason why we share our faith is out of obedience. Now, this is not optional. Sharing the gospel is not optional. In fact, if there's not an urge to share the gospel in our hearts and minds, it might be an indication that we never had a legitimate conversion experience. Because the Holy Spirit, his job is to witness concerning Christ. And if the Spirit of God is living inside of our hearts and life, he's going to exalt Christ. There's going to be urges. There's going to be desire. There's going to be something in us that wants to talk about who Jesus is. Now, let me objectify it a little bit. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, that opening line of verse 19, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. The great commission is not the great suggestion. He didn't suggest that we do it. He didn't say, boy, this would really be nice for you to do as followers of Jesus. It'd be wonderful for you to share your faith. You know, it'd be a great thing to do. Let me suggest how you would do this. No, if a believer is not sharing the gospel, we're living in sinful disobedience to God. And one of the reasons why some of us can't get off the dime in terms of victory over certain areas of sin in our lives and we wrestle with carnality and coldness in our hearts may have to do with our lack of obedience and exalting Christ and sharing the gospel when the opportunities present itself. I don't mean to guilt anyone, but it's a reality. 
To share the gospel of Christ is an act of obedience. It's a step of obedience. We do it not because we feel like doing it. We we don't do it because we feel led to do it. We do it because the opportunity is there and and we're supposed to do it. It's a step of obedience. I can't tell you the number of times I've been on airplanes. And you got to understand, I use long flights to catch up on work. And I look forward to it. I look forward to long flights to catch up on correspondence or things that I need to think through or whatever. And it's terrible for me to say this. I pray every time that I get on a plane, Lord Jesus, if there's somebody you want me to share the gospel with, let me sit next to them. And then I hope that he will say no to that. I want you to work. I'm just being honest with you. How many of you like that? The rest are liars. Uh, <laughs> just being honest with you, okay? And I, I just can't tell you the number of times that I sit down, someone sits next to me, and they say, well, what do you do? And that's a wide open door. And I want to talk about weather, sports, what do you do? And God says, okay, you don't feel like doing it, but you better obey me. It's a step of obedience. But the other thing is that we need to understand, and this is what, what I, it's not a legalistic obedience. We're empowered to obey. In Luke chapter 24, this is a great text. In Luke chapter, chapter 24, Jesus gives this commissioning, and I'll summarize it for the sake of time, verses 45 through 49. This is Luke's rendition of the Great Commission. And uh, Jesus has gathered them all together. And he declares that they are witnesses of his message. But then he says in verse 49, uh, prophesying or or telling them to stay in the city of Jerusalem, the events of Acts chapter 1 and and chapter 2 is going to take place. But he says, I want you to remain in the city. Now look at this line. Until you are clothed with power from on high. Now here's what I want you to, to, to see and understand. That the power to obey is within us. The Spirit of God will embolden us. He will help us. He will work through us. And so we have the Holy Spirit that drives us to obey him, empowers us. So obedience is another reason. The fifth reason why we share the gospel is because it offers and extends The hope of God's love. When I say the hope of God's love, I'm not saying that maybe he does love. I'm saying the confidence of his love. John 3.16 is uh, probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The gospel is the expression of God's love. God showed up to say that I love you. I love you. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet and still sinners, Christ died for us. We share the gospels because we are expressions and vehicles of God's love. God is speaking through us. It offers his love. When we share the gospel, we're like the UPS guy around Christmas, delivering packages filled with God's love. We got to get close enough to people for them to smell the aroma. We got to care enough about them. We've got to love them and let God love 
through us. You see, you, you can't separate you, you, you can't separate God's vertical love for us and our love for others. There's an interesting text in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think Shane's going to refer to this next week. When Paul talks about, for the love of Christ constrains us. Commentators have had a struggle with that verse for many years. Bible scholars, because they, they're confused. Is it our love for Christ or Christ's love for us? And I think it's purposely vague because... It's both. It's God's great love for us and our great love for him that constrains us to offer that love to others, that we care about them, that we're concerned about them, that we love them. If we really love someone, we do the very difficult things, don't we? We do the hard things. We express that love to them. And so one of the reasons why we share the gospel is that it is it is the vehicle, we are the vehicle by and through whom God expresses his love for a broken and messed up and confused world. Do you want God to love people through you? Do you want him to love people through you? The older I get, the more I move into a place in my life where it's It's more important for people to know that I love them than for them to think that I'm right. It's more important when we share the gospel that people know that there's a person and a God in heaven that loves them. Everybody's looking for love. Every last one of us. Everybody's starving for it. Everybody's hemmed in about it. We need God's amazing love to set us, set us free. The sixth reason why we share the gospel is because it offers a cure for brokenness and bondage. In parentheses, that's sin. It offers a cure for brokenness and bondage. I love the story in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. It is an amazing story. Jesus is invited to the home of Levi, this Pharisee. And as you know, Pharisees were pretentious and uppity. So Jesus is in this home. Well, there's this prostitute that sees Jesus go inside of this house. Now, this is the last place that if you're the Lord of history in the mind of a Pharisee, that you're to be seen with a prostitute. But this prostitute is so broken and, 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 and at the bottom of her life, so overwhelmed with her sin, and undoubtedly, she's heard about the greatness of Jesus and heard about his offer of forgiveness and hope that she crashes the dinner party. Not only does she crash the dinner party, you know, sit in the corner, wait till it's over and try to talk to him. Once she gets her eyes on Jesus, the text says that she has this alabaster box full of ointment and she begins to weep at the feet of Jesus and, and, and wash there's a lot of tears, wash his feet with her tears. By the way, a little aside there. Foot washing was a common uh, courtesy that you did for your guests during that time. You walked a long ways and, and usually the lowliest of all the service washed the feet of the invited guests. It'd be like us serving iced tea. But, but, but Levi didn't wash Jesus' feet, but this woman washes his feet with her tears, pours ointment over his feet, dries his feet with her hair. And the text says, Levi says, if Jesus was such a prophet, 
he would know what kind of woman this is. Jesus stands back and says, you know, Levi, I came here. You didn't even wash my feet, man. This woman hadn't stopped. She could care less. She just wants to be free. Then Jesus makes this statement in verse 47. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. I think part of the problem with us sharing our faith is that we've lost the magnitude of our own bondage. That's part of our problem. Time has distanced us from the horrific hell that we were in. We've gotten more accustomed to our own personal freedom that we don't, we don't, we don't remember how bad things were. One of the reasons why Les Mis is such a popular, powerful uh, film and, and, uh, and musical, Karen and I have seen it, I don't know how many times we've seen it in the theater and uh, just saw the, the movie the other day, is because of this story of redemption. Jean Valjean never forgets, never forgets, never forgets, never forgets the acts of mercy and forgiveness and love. And because he has never forgotten, he continues to extend. And we share the hope of the gospel because we understand giving people more money and giving them more positions and giving them a nicer house and changing their environment and giving them more resources and all of that stuff is not going to set them free. If you give a thief who stole a bottle of liquor from a liquor store a college degree, he'll figure out how to uh, steal the liquor store. People are ensnared. And the hope of the gospel sets them free. The seventh and the final reason why we share the gospel, we share our faith, already said it, is that it finds and restores lost people. Finds and restores lost people. In Luke chapter 15, there are three parables, and all three of them are about lostness. It's almost as if Jesus has given them in rapid success, and so, so you really get why he came. Lost, 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 lost. My priority is lost people. My priority is lost people. Jesus is not into babysitting the religious. His priority is lost people. So you have, you, you, you have these three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. It's as if he said, do you get it? Do you get it? The shepherd that has a hundred sheep and one of them goes off. He cares about every last one of them. He will leave the 90 and 9 and go get that sheep. And then he says there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who comes to, to repentance. 
The woman with all those coins, she loses one of her precious silver coins. She turns everything upside down. I gotta find that coin. The dad whose son rebels is obnoxious. Leaves the house, doesn't know where he is. Every day he's looking at the lane wondering, is my boy going to come home? And he comes home. What happens? There's rejoicing. It's as if Jesus says, don't you get it? Heaven throws a party. And someone else is added to the kingdom. And they're found. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In Luke chapter 19 verse 10, the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus <laughs> is tax man. One of the things that consistent about tax people that historically ain't nobody ever liked them. It's another issue. Zacchaeus is on the tree and Jesus says, hey buddy, come down. I got to come home with you today. I got to come home with you today. Then Jesus says, for the son of man has come. To seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is seeking and saving the lost through us. It's the only way he's going to do it. It's the only way he's going to do it. He's seeking and saving that lost person in the next cubicle next to you. Through you. Your neighbor through you. The dude in algebra class, through you. Seeking and saving the lost through us. Fellowship, one of the things that we all have to do, and you've heard me say this before, I I struggle with this because I'm with Christians too much. Entirely too much of my time is spent with Christians. Entirely too much of my time is spent with believers. One of the things that I I fear about our evangelical culture is that we've created um, sort of a little bit of a quasi-monastic order where we have withdrawn from the world, withdrawn from unbelievers. And I think it's a mistake. I think it's a mistake for your children. We got to be careful of withdrawing from non-believers. We need to run to the world. Run to non-Christians. You can't impact that which we don't come in contact with. They need to know that there's a place at my father's table for them. One of my favorite stories, uh, movies, is an old movie. Never would win any Academy Award. It's the movie Antoine Fisher. Some of you may have seen that movie. What I love and the most moving scene in that whole deal is Antoine grows up and he's angry, mad at the world, mad at everybody else because of the rejection that he's had. Uh, his mother was a prisoner. 
had him in prison, gave him up. He didn't know he was abused and all this kind of thing. And he goes back to find his mother in Cleveland and faces more abuse and stuff. He has cousins and aunts and this kind of thing. But little does he know. After confronting his mother and getting more rejection, he comes back to the house. And he opens the dining room doors, and there is a table spread for him with all of his extended family. They say, come home. Come home. That's what we're commissioned to do, fellowship. It's not about results. It's not about numbers. It's not about who's better at it than who isn't. But it's all about sharing the hope of the Lord Jesus with a lost world. Letting them know that God stopped the world in order to provide his solution so that we can come home. Will you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, for these somewhat simple observations about what it really means and why we should share the hope of the gospel. Father, we pray that you'll help all of us to be faithful at it. Lord, uh, we never know how you're going to use the words that we share. Help us not to be so obsessed with how we're doing and what people think about us that we pull back and not share what you have done for us. Lord Jesus, drive us, motivate us, help us, Lord, to live for you and to do all that we possibly can to populate heaven. Oh God, our world is lost. We were lost. Our world is confused. We were confused. Thank you, oh God for the hope of the gospel. Thank you for the freedom that we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessings on you.